Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is developing a distribution strategy with my friend, Matt McGregor. How's it going, Matt? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me on. Yes, yes, yes. This is an interesting topic for me. We don't always talk about distribution and locations and all the other stuff, but it's such an important part of the biz and it seems to get overlooked. We we worry about freight rates and our trucks and mo- modes and all that. But this, I think if you're a, a logistics guy, you want to mess, definitely understand what Matt's got to say here. So before we go any further, Matt, please introduce yourself and your company. Thank you very much, uh, Matt McGregor. I'm in, located in Seattle, Washington with uh, Colliers International. We're a commercial real estate company handling all things fulfillment, distribution, uh, e-commerce type facilities, and manufacturing. We've got uh, 563 offices in 68 countries, and we Whoa. split our headquarters between uh, Seattle and New York. Interesting, interesting. And I think, Matt, when we're talking, when we're prepping for this, you actually went to school for supply chain. You got your, you went back to school to get a supply chain degree, and you guys actually have a, like a supply chain specialization, right? Yes, we were very fortunate. Yeah, I went to back back to school at a late age. I have an interesting background in education, but yes, recently went back and we researched. We saw things really changing in supply chain a few years ago, and we researched. We all did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And we were like, gosh, how do we figure out supply chain and tie that into the brokerage business as a significant tool on our belt? And Wait, wait. When you say brokerage business, you mean real estate brokerage business? Yeah, we call it brokerage. I'm an industrial broker by trade. Most of the people listening will think freight brokerage. Yes, say. exactly. Yes, you better say real estate yes. versus yeah, the yeah. other. Commercial real estate, again, just all things big box related. So, again, distribution, manufacturing, e-commerce, and fulfillment. So we you know, move buildings, whether you lease them, build them, trade them, all things related with the distribution big box. Right. Yep. So before we get into all that, Let's understand a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Tell us all of that good stuff. Yes, I grew up in a suburb of Seattle, North Seattle Shoreline, actually. Born and raised there. Really, the only other place I lived for a while was Alaska. It's a whole other, whole other story. But school was an interesting one for me as I learned you know, very young that I had a severe case, still do, you never outgrow it, of dyslexia. So, you know, I can start and say, yes, I've got my master's of science from Michigan State University, a quick plug, number one program in the country for supply chain. But their basketball team lost yesterday. Oh, so. What a brutal game. I know. <laughs> yes, I know. overtime game. First, oh. My daughter went there and my son-in-law and so many of my good friends. And boy, the Spartan Nation was devastated by oh. that loss. They're usually such an awesome team when it comes, you know, especially when they get to March. Izzo just gets them ready. And they got, they won, beat three of the top five teams going into the tournament and then lose to a team I think they were better than. But anyway, get back to it. I think they're 0-6 on that court that they played on. So that's <laughs> yeah, specific Don't play court. there anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> that, well, that's another challenge. Every time they make a team play in the wrong time zone like that, that's always hard. Yeah. 
Very young, though. So anyway, getting back to it, you guys specialize in this. So you went back to school to get a degree in supply chain from the number one school in supply chain. And you did that at a late age. But let's get back to where you grew up, where you went to school. Yeah. So going back, I actually didn't graduate high school, believe it or not. And you think, how is that possible? You have a master's degree. As I was saying, I had dyslexia. And I, I can remember at an early age, just even third grade, I know that classroom. I used to watch people out the window of my classroom waiting to get on the bus to go to work. And I remember just wanting so bad just to do that because I was not successful in school. So at a very young age, I went to work. My first job was at the Family Fitness Center, cleaning racquetball courts and gyms and things like that. And when I used to walk to the Family Fitness Center, I used to walk by this place called Super Sound. I was 10 years old and they were in a strip mall. And the end of that strip mall was Family Fitness Center. I used to go in every day. I loved music, loved stereos. Long story short, I got to know everything in there and they hired me. And so at 10 years old, I started working at Super Sound of Seattle, first stocking and moving around all of their kind of a stereo warehouse. So, and so I got to know everything. And eventually, as I got a little bit older, 11, 12, started actually selling the stereo equipment. So I got to know it so well. If you became a senior guy. An expert, yes. 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Fast forward, I wasn't a high school dropout, but I got to the end of high school and didn't have the credits to graduate. Never actually did graduate high school and went right into the work field. Just really, really struggled in school. And back then, they didn't know what to do with you. So they would put you in slower learning classes. And the problem with that is you would fall further and further behind with every passing year, right? And so by the time you get to the end, you're so far behind, they just didn't have a program. And it was funny because they would always test you. And I know talking to you, you struggled from some of the same things. They would always test me and go, gosh, the guy's really intelligent. Why can't he just figure this out? Maybe he's lazy, right? right. And so you'd get punished and all of these things. And so it changes who you are, though, because for sure, you kind of have this hidden shame a little bit. Like No question about it. And, you know, to some extent you go, oh, I'm not even trying. I don't want anyone to think I'm putting a real effort into this. Because I, everyone knows I'm not a good student, so I got to play the fool a little bit, like make it clear that I didn't try, you know, so it's okay to lose. That's right. Well, fast forward, I was very successful in the work career and at the age of 23 started selling food. At a, I was actually a cheese importer, importing 6,000 different types of cheeses, but it was a full-line food distributor. And I quickly rose to the top of the ranks, you know, nationally and became one of the best food salesmen out there. And I learned through listening to audio cassettes that I was an audio learner, which changed my world because you know, reading a book would take me a year back then. I started knocking out a couple books a week and learned that I was an audio learner. So fast forward, I started going to night school, I put myself through University of Washington, and then went back to the University of Washington when I wanted to go into logistics, transportation, and commercial real estate. And went back, postgraduate certificate, and then I went on and went to a couple of different universities for supply chain. And then well into my career, obviously, later went back and got my master's in science, as we discussed. So kind of a strange path to where I am <laughs> educationally, but I figured right. it out. <laughs> right. I went through some of the same thing, and I, I'm not dyslexic, but I had ADD, which back in the day was just you need to focus more. You need to pay attention. Yeah, <laughs> you need to do your exactly. work. And <laughs> to some extent, we went through the same thing where I struggled with certain things. And God, you know, the um, 
school was torture. And I, but I did enjoy working. And I knew once I got to the work that I was fine because I was always a hard worker. And as I got older, I started to realize that, you know, I actually am a good student. I went to night school. I got my undergrad at 30, my master's in 37, 38. And I went to my, actually my master's, my undergrad's in business, but my master's is in um, education geared towards consulting and training. Excellent. And partly because of what my struggles early on, I was very interested. And I kind of went through the whole thing when I had uh, kids though, because you can see that whole process again, playing out. And I have one daughter who was ADD and uh, she got the diagnosis early and man, I remember when she started taking the pill and I know people would be like, oh, don't give your kids pill. It was like day and night when she got that pill, man, she was a great student. Anyway, well, yeah, interesting background. So when did you join Collier's and why did, what drew you to Collier's? I joined Collier's about, gosh, I think it's 12 to 13 years ago. I really liked Collier's because it's, I had been at a few commercial real estate firms prior to joining Collier's. I liked Collier's because they were one of the largest in the world, but they were a very flat organization. And my part, business partner and I were recruited by the CEO of the company at the time, and they were so approachable for lo- such a large company and so flat. And to this day, I mean, I could pick up the phone and, and call the top executives. They're super, super flat, very approachable, very entrepreneurial. They didn't have all of the roadblocks as an entrepreneur, you want to be a bit of a cowboy and you, you need some structure, but having the ability to go and create the business the way you want to create it was what attracted me to the company. But they had, they also had all the resources being the top one, two, three player in the world. Nice, nice. So let's get to it. Let's talk about developing a distribution strategy. So one of the things that I've always kind of known, and maybe I don't know how well that people would know this is. If you could only have one place to do, let's just say you're, you were selling equally to everybody in the United States and say, I sell just proportionally, right? So I would locate my distribution center where? If I had one well, place. If you're covering the entire United States. You're probably not a distribution facility. You're probably a, more of a fulfillment right. facility. Right. And so that one place, technically speaking, without knowing anything else, would be Northern Indiana, which would be the center of the United States by a population standpoint. So you would touch the majority of the people quicker from that location than arguably any other location in the United States. Right. What city is near uh, in Northern Indiana? I should know. I'm, I'm in Michigan. I'm the one state over. Well, you're probably actually not going to locate in Northern Indiana by city. I'm just saying from a heat perspective. So you're probably not going to go up and locate there, but you're probably going to locate more of the, because remember, logistics facilities need to be mostly fulfillment, need to be close to major transportation hubs, including airports. And so you're probably going to be closer to Indianapolis, right? Technically speaking, it would be well north of that. But logistically speaking, it's going to be closer to Indianapolis. Yeah, well, it's interesting because if, you know, I'm over in Detroit area. And so if I drive over to Chicagoland and by the time you get near Gary, Indiana, you look around and every what should be cars around you is now trucks around you. It That's is right. unbelievable right. how many trucks. Yes. And if you go kind of the southern round, you go down through Indianapolis, down that way, same thing. There are so many trucks. And when you get in Chicago, you're in traffic jams sometimes, depending on the hour. And you look around and go, it's just trucks, just trucks. So I understand why we have so many freight brokers and logistics people in Chicago, because I think they're managing a lot of stuff in that whole region. 
Yeah, I think as soon as you hit that uh, Gary, Indiana, you never slow down with the truck traffic all the way to the other, even past Chicagoland. So that makes sense to me. So if you have one location and it wouldn't necessarily be a distribution, it'd be more like I got a fulfillment center. This is the place to do it from. So let's get to if I wanted to create like a distribution strategy, and I think what's interesting is people would say, well, yeah, why are you talking to Matt? Matt's a, Matt's a, a real estate broker. What does he know about it? But that's where you start. <laughs> you start with the real estate guys, right? Because they're the strategists. They're the ones who create this. So Matt, tell us what we should be looking for when we're developing that. How does it all start? For sure. I think the common mistake and the reason why we went back and got highly educated in supply chain is, you know, so many brokers go out and think that their job is to go negotiate a rate or, you know, a per square foot price. When you say broker, you mean real estate broker. Yeah, commercial real estate broker. So you're going out and negotiating whether you're building, leasing, buying, trading a large distribution center in any specific city. So many brokers and clients look at brokers as the simple negotiation of the base rent and free rent and improvements that go into it. We go into it with a very different approach because the mistake with that approach, and it's all too common, is the actual rent of the facility is probably fourth or fifth down, you know, any CEO or CFO or CEO's ledger as far as the costs, right? So real estate from that perspective, distribution real estate, logistics real estate, is probably somewhere, depending on the firm, if you're manufacturing fulfillment distribution, it might be four to eight percent of your total costs. If you're 3PL, it might be you know 30 or higher percent. But the majority of these firms are logistics and transportation, right? So you have to go in with that mentality first before you're ever thinking about the rate, because that's somewhere fourth, fifth, sixth down the ledger. When you say worry about the transportation costs, what do you mean by that? Is you mean I need to worry about the location? Location is number one. For sure. And I'm talking, even if you're operating out of one city or in one region and you just have one distribution facility, it's massively important because a couple mile difference could be a 11 to 18% different cost year over year from that facility. I think the mistake in our industry so often is, oh, I don't need that sophistication unless I'm doing a total network optimization and I have (laughs) facilities across the United States. No, it can be a massive difference in if you're locating just across the border in a tight region within a city it could be a just a few miles away could make a huge difference right so you have to go in and have all things analyzed and from a understanding that labor pool to inbound freight outbound freight obviously is massively important where your customers are and then you look at the functionality of the building there's all of these things that I call a total cost analysis. So you guys do this total cost analysis, and then you do this before you start looking for buildings. Before you start looking through your listings, you say, let's develop an analysis, kind of a needs analysis, and say, I need to understand what you're selling. Obviously, that would matter. Or if it's a fulfillment center, what kind of stuff you'd have in there. So you want to be able to understand the needs of the actual building, regardless of where it's at. You want to understand that functionality? Yes, I would say if you are a distributor, manufacturer, filament type operation, and just say you need a couple hundred thousand feet, and you tell your person that, that's a, a commercial real estate broker, and they're ready to run with that, if they're ready to run just based on that, the size requirement in a region, you probably got the wrong person, 
right? <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a, we call it our strategy checklist that probably has 75 questions. It's a 13 page questionnaire that we go over with clients because you really need to understand that company inside and out, almost like you work there in order to ever arrive at location, right? So you're looking first, making sure that that facility is going to align with the, the branding and operations. Again, I touched on this. You, you have to understand the labor components. You have to understand that the inbound freight. Uh, so, so, when, yeah. so when you say labor component, that means that there's available labor and that they're the right appropriately priced, hopefully for your market. So you don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere if you need to hire a lot of people. Yeah. If you're moving, you want to understand where's my current labor pool and how important is it that I pull them with us. You have to understand where you're going, what that labor pool looks like. Is that imported labor from that particular region? Because that's obviously more expensive. And when I say import, I'm just talking about drive time, right? Right. It's a big difference if they have to drive into the region from a recruitment and retention standpoint. And then it's what the future of that is. What's the growth rate of that particular region? Because, you know, when you when you go into a region, sometimes it's millions, millions of dollars. It can be for a move into a facility. People don't want to spend that money for two, three, four or five year analysis. You want to understand that. And then there's factors of. Can I compete in that labor pool? Does Amazon have a 2.8 million footer right next to where you're going? Right. And they pay $5 more an hour. And so that's a massive issue. I noticed that where I live, I live about 25 minutes out of Ann Arbor, and it's a little bit starting to be the rural area. And there's always been manufacturing out here, but they don't have any, as it evolved, it there was nobody, there was not a lot of cheap housing out here. So manufacturers bus people in from far away to get them to come work here in the, during the day. And it's like, well, that was, a, I mean, it might be cheaper to buy land out in the farmland, but you didn't have labor out here. And, you know, also like you look at state to state, you mentioned we talking about I'm in Michigan and Indiana's right next to us. Illinois is past that. If you look, Indiana became a right to work state. Mm-hmm. And then Michigan, oh, this goes back five, seven years ago, became right to work also. And, God forbid I get political, I won't do that. But what's interesting is at the time, there was a belief that we were losing business to Indiana after they became right to work. And when Michigan became right to work, it was like a big deal because we're a very strong labor here. But it's just kind of the economics of it. So if somebody says, yeah, I'm going to locate somewhere right here in uh, coming near the Indiana-Michigan border. Well, if one has you know much cheaper labor and labor costs, I should say, because it's non-union, whatever, then that makes a lot of sense. So I know there's people making these decisions. That's why they need someone like you to create this analysis. Yeah. And again, you're comparing state to state, which absolutely I do every day, but I also do it, as I said, right within a tight region. Say if you're in Seattle, for example, and again, you need a few hundred thousand foot building, there could be a substantial difference in a city by city that just could be a few miles away. It could be a dramatic difference in that. So you get into certainly the labor analytics. And then I would say the next one and a huge cost is transportation. And what, what does that mean? Transportation means inbound freight, you know, whether you're a distributor and you're getting cogs in from the port or it's being trucked up from other areas. So what are your inbound freight costs and then outbound freight costs, which are, are massive? Where is your customers? How quickly do you want it there? If you're a distributor, you're distributing to that region every day. So what are the mile-by-mile transportation costs? Because that's a huge cost. 
And if you're fulfilling, then how quickly do you want it there? Is it hours? Is it a day? Is it two or three days? Right. Especially if it's food. I know food is a big deal. I know it's hard to say if you're going to do food, you really have to, if you've said like frozen fulfillment, I've had people on my podcast about that. You can't say I'm going to be a frozen fulfillment center that distributes nationwide and I'm going to be based in Oregon or Seattle, because I'm going to struggle to get that food. I'm going to need a second facility. I'm going to need somebody to help me out on the East Coast, right? Yes, exactly. And and food's a huge, that was my background. That's where I came from originally. So so you've yelled at logistics guys about food going bad. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And your most expensive thing from a food distribution standpoint is certainly going to be that mile per mile movement of that truck, both from the capacity of, of just the expense of moving the truck and that labor And so understanding where that location is to cut that labor down, the last thing you want is the driver sitting on the road all day in gridlock and on the wrong interstates and and having a difficult time accessing the customers. Getting back to you, I want to do a few examples here, Matt, if you don't mind. So the number one thing I need to concern myself is not getting the wrong location. So I need an analysis. You're going to help me that. I go to Collier's, they're going to create a nice analysis for me with that big checklist. Help me avoid getting the wrong location, number one. That's right. Help me avoid getting the wrong kind of building, one that doesn't suit my needs, that cost me extra money every single day that I own it. We got to consider labor. We have to consider the inbound logistics costs mm-hmm. and transportation costs, and then the outbound. So that's, you know, where are my suppliers? Where's my outbound? And so I need this whole analysis. And so it would be real easy if I said, hey, look, I get my stuff from China. It comes in the port of L.A., and most of my customers are here in California. Life is good, right? That isn't super tough for you guys. Now, <laughs> where I wonder where it gets a little, if I said, hey, look, I'm doing a lot of automotive stuff. So it's more in the Midwest and the South. So I want to be over there. But my stuff's still coming from China. So I noticed that a lot of the stuff comes from China. I still have to worry about the logistics, the inbound costs. But I know, also know that I want to be somewhere in the Midwest or the South because of where my customers are. So how do you manage something like that? I'm just curious, uh, what's your head tell you about a problem like that? So, I mean, you're getting into kind of the network optimization part of it, and that's a huge part of our analysis. So it's analyzing all of those things, what we call total cost analysis. So you're analyzing the inbound freight cost with outbound freight, making sure that that facility is located exactly where it needs to be. Does it need to be two facilities? Does it need to be four facilities? And if we're talking about our in-region, how big is that box? Then you get into the functionality of the actual real estate. Once you say, hey, it's going to be located here, now you get into what I call some of the risk assessment things. For example, how do I access that building? What happens if uh, the surrounding areas are in a floodplain. What happens in that situation? What are the environmental conditions? What's my tolerance for being in a building with somebody else that might have odors that affects my product? Things like that. What, again, what I call risk assessment. Some people say, gosh, I want the tallest building possible. I want a 42 foot or I want it, you know, because when you go up, you know, that space is technically free, right? But you can get into a situation where if your product, say you have an ESFR a sprinkler system, is too far away from the sprinkler heads. Now you just created an in-rack sprinkler situation that's costing you millions of dollars because you went too too high or and it's slowing down the movement of freight in the building. So there's all of this analysis that you've got to go into once you understand the inbound freight and outbound freight 
and you understand the labor component. Now you get into the functionality of the real estate. I know a story of a company that I ended up moving that simply moved and they had an 800,000 square foot facility because they, when they went in there later, they changed. And if they had done a little bit of research on the, on the traffic analysis, just around the building, their trucks couldn't take a left turn later. And it was in the plans, (laughs) right? It was actually in the plans of the city that they were going to put up this barrier because they were changing this road about a year and a half after they signed the lease on this building. So they couldn't take a left turn. What did that mean? Every single truck that went in there added about 22 minutes because they had to take a right and go all the way down and turn this. You know, it's not like a little car that can just whip around. And that's just wasted time. Exactly. And so there's all of this analysis. And again, we call it our strategy checklist that we go over and we get into these minor details like that that can make a massive cost difference. And so those are the things that, again, that we've added to our tool belt, make sure that that facility is the right one. Yeah, Matt, when we were prepping, I told you a story about when I was in automotive, we would run into this all the time. You're always changing over factories to the next thing. And every once in a while you say, okay, we're going to move this assembly line out of the building. It's going to go maybe to a supplier or wherever. And then they'd say, oh, we, we've got an extra 10,000 square feet over here or an extra 20,000. I mean, big space. They would a lot of times knock a wall down and rebuild that building. I'd say, well, I don't understand. They're like, well, it's, you got to insure that you got to heat that it's just extra space. And we do the math. They would do the math. They would knock it down and knock down a wall and move it. And I was like, oh my God, but people did that. They would always come back with that math and I'd go, okay, they know what they're doing. The facilities guys don't, they don't make mistakes that way. And it was very interesting. You know, one other thing, and we were talking about this also when we're prepping, we all see Amazon. They want to get like Walmart. They want to be in Target. They want to be able to do fulfillment from there. They want one day and next day, or I'm sorry, same day and next day fulfillment. And I noticed that they're buying up old malls. And all of us who used to grow up going to the malls are now not going to the malls as much. So I've seen them buying malls. And uh, we explain a little bit why that's happening. As you know, and as everybody knows, our world has changed so quickly. Amazon obviously is going nuts. They did reportedly about a thousand industrial type deals last year in the United States. Just a crazy amount of growth that company. I hope you guys got a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) So they, they're going gangbusters, but the world changed e-commerce. Everybody thinks they were buying so much online, even pre-COVID. You know, I don't know about you, but even pre-COVID, I swear every day I walk up and there's two, three hours just sitting there at my doorstep. But interestingly enough, before COVID in 2019, out of all retail sales, only 14% in the U.S. were online. Okay. In comparison, at the same time, if you average Korea, Japan, and China, they were at about 44% in 2019 compared to the United States. We think we're so advanced. Uh, 14% of all retail sales were online. Fast forward, at the end of COVID, at the end of 2020, that had raised to 35%. So about five to seven of the next years, all the growth that we would have predictively had over the next five to seven years happened inside of four quarters. But we're still not there, right? I think that we're going to, I don't think obviously with COVID, we're going to, we had this massive, massive shift. I mean, I don't know about your 
older people in your life, but my parents would have never bought online. <laughs> oh no, my, my mom used to ship to get her groceries. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The fact that I, I mean, I, yeah, I was trying to teach them how to do it was painful, but now that they know how to do it, they're never going back. Okay. They love the fact that they can buy all this stuff online. They're sophisticated at it now. And so we're not going back. I mean, we're going to see going to your mall question. We're going to see people going back to malls as we're coming out of this but never to the degree that we were. So that infrastructure is going to change. We're not going to have the growth that we had in e-commerce year over year like we just had, but now it's going to continue to grow at a faster rate than it did prior. At some point in the future, our retail sales will cross the 50% threshold. So going back to your mall question, why was the mall located in that specific location in the first place? Because some smart team looked at it and said, gosh, this is right off the major interchanges. It's the perfect location. It's a rooftop count, is, which is the demographic term for having the right amount of customer base with money that right. <laughs> close proximity to that location. So all of the demographics and transportation analysis worked perfectly to put this mall there. Well, guess what? That's obviously the exact same reasons and checklists and all of that that a company like Amazon looks at and says, last mile location right here. So this mall, the business mall that's not working anymore because 35% is now online is a perfect spot for a company like Amazon. And most likely, if it's there, there was labor that was available. To your point, the mall's not never in the middle of nowhere. Maybe outlets are a little off the beaten track, but they're near highways at least. But the labor is there. The people are close by. So if they want to do same day next day, they say, hey, I'm in a mall. I know I can do same day next day because the mall's been doing it for the last 40 years. All of the assessments were done. You know, you're not in a floodplain. You got the demographics. You've got the household count. You've got, you got power, water, all of it, right? All of it, yes. That's interesting. That's interesting. So it's an interesting thing. We've had other podcasts on this, which is about Walmart versus Target versus Amazon. And, you know, if you look at Target, they do such a good job on home delivery. They bought Shipped. Shipped is now owned by them. And they have 200,000 personal shoppers. And I use them. And uh, I guess they're similar to Instacart. But I keep thinking to myself is, that's just scratching the surface. It could get like to 2 million easily. I mean, it's crazy. But Target does a fantastic job on that home delivery piece or pick it up at store, order it online, pick it up, all that kind of stuff. But Amazon, if they're behind anywhere, it's the same day next day because they aren't Target and they aren't Walmart. They don't have stores everywhere. And I see these stores becoming more and more like mini fulfillment centers. And I see Amazon looking and saying, how do we get to that same place? So I'm using them as an example because I think it's a challenge that everybody has you know, wants to do that e-commerce fulfillment. Yeah, I think that, I mean, Amazon certainly has figured it out. They're leading the pack by far. I think it has been a challenge for companies like Walmart and Target to try to combine e-commerce fulfillment out of retail stores. They're not set up for that. They're extremely inefficient from that perspective. Have they tried it or are they doing it to some degree? Yes. I don't think that's a sustainable model. I think retail is changing. I would not be surprised in the future, and I've certainly seen people attempt this to combine it, but it would be more of a smaller retail front with a fulfillment center off the back, but it's set up more as a fulfillment center because having somebody run around aisles trying to put orders together in an inefficient way is, is not a great model. Right. 
So when I buy a laptop, as you know, I need a new laptop. We talked about that. But uh, <laughs> my my jack, he doesn't want my microphone jack won't go in right That's anymore. That's not so, for a podcaster. <laughs> no. But when I go to Best Buy, I like Best Buy. And I like going over there because I can touch the stuff. I've bought for online. Sure. I like the idea of touching it, but what's weird is, uh, I shouldn't say weird, I think it's the new norm, is I'll say, yeah, I want this one, I'll try it out, I'll see how heavy it is, and then they'll go, okay, cool, and then they say, we'll ship it to you. They'll ship it to me, you know, the next day, they'll say, make sure you're at your house between this time and this time, and I was like, yeah. So you can see Best Buy doesn't need to have enormous inventory, they could say, hey, we're going to get to the place where nobody walks out of here with anything, because we're going to deliver it. You can see some people going that route. And then there's, I guess there's always going to be people who say, I want to walk out with my stuff. Therefore, I want you to carry extra inventory and have extra costs and I'm willing to pay for it. Yeah, the dynamics are changing and it's changing faster and faster and faster. And some of the technologies that are coming out are going to revolutionize even what we know today. And two of them specifically is autonomous trucks and drones. I think a lot of people go, what are you talking about? That's futuristic. You know, stuff. <laughs> it's not. I mean, autonomous trucks, for example, are already impacting distribution. And some reports that I've read on a webinar a couple of weeks ago, so I had to you know, read quite a bit on them. Some of the reports that I'm reading from significant sources are indicating that most, the majority, I should say, of long haul trucking in the United States by 2028, so we're only talking a few years away, will be autonomous trucks. And autonomous trucks have been running up and down the highway from Ports LA and Long Beach into Phoenix, major distribution hub, along that Highway 10 corridor for five years. No way. Walmart, UPS, FedEx, Amazon, you know, have been dumping tons of money into analyzing this. And then I'll touch on drone technology. People are like, oh, you know, that's never going to happen. Again, in 2016, Amazon made its first delivery outside of London via drone. And you think, oh, how can that be? They can't carry that much. They can only, right now, carry about five pounds. But get this, 70, I think it's 73% of all prime deliveries are under five pounds. Interesting. So, you know, I'm definitely with you on the autonomous vehicles. I could see that. That makes sense. I've actually, I live near Ann Arbor and they work, uh, Google has stuff going on there and Ford has stuff going on. So I have seen like a bus that drives around there that I don't think that has a driver. I'm also not getting on it yet. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the drone's a different thing for me. And the reason I say that is I just envision, let's just say you live in a major city and then you wake up and you say, I'm going to go for a walk and we all want our life to look nice. I'm going to walk to this store or whatever. And I see hundreds, if not thousands of drones overhead moving stuff. I don't see that. I think that would be an eyesore. Now, there's another way to look at it. Maybe a drone's coming off of a vehicle, an autonomous vehicle, and maybe it's even a wheeled drone, right? Maybe they don't call it a drone, but... I'm also, I live in Michigan, so we have lots of hunters in the rural areas. And then in the city, we have other guns for other reasons. And I think people would shoot those drones out of the sky. (laughs) 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 And if they became an eyesore, and I tell you, you would not want to go, I took the kids on a nature walk and there here's six down drones. There was a storm last night. I just, I struggle with that. I'm not against it. I'm just Struggle with the way it looks. I'm sure once upon a time, people were like, there's no way everybody's going to have a car and clog up all these roads. And right. Um, So I get it. That's another thing. When you talk about autonomous vehicles, 
they say in major cities, 30% of the, I think it's 30% of the drivers are looking for a parking spot. Now, if you had an autonomous vehicle that drive you in downtown Seattle? Yes. If you had an autonomous vehicle that dropped you off at the door today and then you got out and it said it drove itself out 30 minutes away, you would say, yeah, we have a whole lot of space here because we don't have very expensive parking in Seattle anymore. There's no question that in a very short amount of time, that is going to be the reality. So not only all going to be in autonomous cars, and I'm talking in years, a few years, I'm not talking decades. And our long haul trucks are going to be that way. Our, our delivery trucks are going to be that way. The question is not, are we going there? The question, and I, have to, I deal with power every day because another one of the things that we didn't touch on when you choose a facility can be power and utilities. Imagine that we all get home every night and the U.S. power grid, everybody's plugging in all these cars and autonomous trucks. And that is the next issue that we have is sustainable power because that is a massive issue. We don't have the power. And a lot of people don't understand that, yes, that's environmentally friendlier going to these autonomous vehicles that are electrical vehicles, but we haven't resolved the power issue because the power is still reliant on some archaic powers, such as I think one of the predominant powers still in the United States is coal. Right. right. I said that to a friend who has a Tesla. I said, oh, I like your coal burning car. <laughs> exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I won't always be that way, but you know, what's an, another uh, interesting thing I keep thinking someday we'll, um, Matt, you'll talk to your grandchildren many years from now and say, yeah, when I was young, we used to get in our own cars. We controlled it ourselves. So if we wanted to speed, we could speed. If we wanted to go off the road, we could. And sometimes we just made idiot decisions. And I can imagine the grandkids going, yeah, but wait, couldn't you like kill people? I mean, weren't there a lot of accidents? You're like, yeah, like you can't trust humans to drive around in vehicles. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I look forward to sitting in the back of a car, not driving. But anyway. Maybe I'll summarize this and you give us your final thought. So if you're looking and you need to do a distribution strategy or a fulfillment strategy or terminals for your trucks or whatever, you need to start with a strategy. You need something other than just, I'm going to go to Indianapolis and buy a building. You need to get the right location based on inbound shipments, outbound shipments, the transportation costs related to that. You need the right kind of building. You need that whole checklist you kind of mentioned. And you need somebody who kind of steer you the right direction, make sure you don't end up way off track. So final thoughts on this, Matt. Yes, you touched on most of it. You definitely need to align your business strategy with your real estate distribution, manufacturing fulfillment strategy. It's extremely important. You got to understand all the labor analytics, as you mentioned, all the transportation analytics, power and utilities and incentives we touch on. The risk assessment with that location from all of the things that I touched on, some that I didn't from that you know left turn <laughs> issue that I said to flood analysis, right. to functionality, to who your neighbors are, um, all of that market information, making sure, you know, am I, am I near the right customer base? Am I far enough away from my customer or from my competitors? All of those things play into what I call supply chain real estate. And it's a total cost analysis. And that's what we do. And we do it well. Yep. So before we go, tell us what's going on over at Collier's and who you serve and how to reach out to you if somebody should want some help. Yeah, absolutely. So 
My business partner, Bill Conn, and I operate out of Seattle. We cover the United States and abroad for you know all size companies that operate again in, in distribution, manufacturing, and fulfillment type facilities, whether it's own or lease and or build to suits. We can be reached on our, we also do a podcast, Industrial Advisors, that's on all the major platforms that you can find. I'll put a link in the show notes to it. Great. Excellent. And then our website, industrialadvisors.com. And then in the show notes and have my email and phone number as well. Yep. I'll put a link to Collier's. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, to your podcast, and anything else you want to give me. And so you serve basically everybody in the supply chain world, whether you're a trucking company or building a fulfillment center, one of fulfillment center, stores, whoever, whoever needs help. Yeah. If you're moving freight in the U.S., uh, we can help you in all things commercial, industrial, real estate. Well, it's been excellent talking to you. It's an eye-opening thing when you think you've covered everything, but this is an interesting topic because I have experienced this when you're in the wrong place, nothing goes right. So this is good stuff. And we never once said it, so I'll say it now, location, location, location. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It always comes back to that. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. It was great show. Until next time, Onward Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 